well, we are three weeks into a series um, about mental health. And if you're just joining us, I just want you to know that we're spending some time in this series because this is such a pervasive issue. It's Mental health issues are everywhere, all around us, and we want to be able to be equipped for that. We want to be able to know how to talk to one another, how to enter into the journey together. Sometimes we think if we're Christians, we shouldn't struggle with mental health. I'm going to put this down a little bit more because I'm still short. All right. Sometimes we think for Christians we really shouldn't struggle with mental health. If we believe in Jesus, that everything should be relatively fine. And I just want to say clearly and out loud at the very beginning, that is a false belief. Mental health is an equal opportunity challenge. And we don't want anyone to be suffering alone, to feel that they have to hide how they're doing when they come in the door. So we're trying to talk about it. And we're using a very familiar text from the Bible to frame this series, Psalm 23. That's the the Lord is my shepherd psalm. Um, There's a reason that that psalm is so familiar that we hear it spoken at funerals often. It's because it acknowledges the pain that is real in our lives. And it tells the truth about the presence and posture of God in the midst of that pain. And so we've been starting our services by Uh, reading Psalm 23 together each week. And I'd like us to do that again. So, I know you just sat down. But would you stand with me and we'll read Psalm 23 together. Thank you. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks. Now, last week, Tom was talking specifically about anxiety. And today, I'm going to be talking about depression. And it's a fairly straightforward message. I'm going to talk a little bit about what depression is. And then we're going to look at part of the scripture together. And then finally, I'll make a few suggestions about what you can do if you're suffering with depression or if you're close to someone who is. According to the Canadian Mental Health Association, the CMHA, depression is a mood disorder that will affect one in eight Canadians at some point in their lives, one in eight. So it's 12 and a half, almost 13% of people. And so my guess is that every one of you has come into contact with someone who's struggling with depression, and many of you have been there yourselves. And even though it's incredibly common, depression is always like a little bit hard to pin down and define, right? What is it exactly? It's not just having a bad day or a bad week. It's not just having the blues. We most often think about it as like a prolonged period of deep despair or hopelessness, but some people who are depressed don't feel that way. They don't really feel anything. And depression changes the way that we feel, and it leaves us with mental and even physical symptoms that can last for a long time. And it's also the leading cause of suicide. So when someone is depressed, they might be experiencing uh, some or all of of these symptoms. We're going to look at some together. Uh, They might experience feelings of helplessness or hopelessness which is when you just feel like nothing is ever going to change in your life. You can't do anything about it. They might experience a loss of interest in daily activities. And so things that we used to love, hobbies that we did, causes that we cared about, 
social activities, even things like sex, bring no joy or pleasure. You just lose interest in things that used to be very good. They might experience appetite or weight changes, and that can run the gamut of things. It might be overeating and weight gain. It might be never being hungry and not wanting to eat, so then losing a lot of weight. There might be changes in sleep patterns, and that's the same. It might be insomnia where you can't fall asleep, and it might be that you're completely exhausted and you can't get out of bed. They might feel anger or irritable. They might be restless or even violent. They might experience concentration problems, like you can't make decisions and you can't remember things and you can't focus on the thing in front of you. And they might experience unexplained pain, so aches and pains, headaches, backaches, stomach pain, things that don't seem to have a cause, but they're real. And if you're experiencing those multiple symptoms, you know, a number of these, and they last for more than two weeks, it's a good idea to talk to your doctor. Because you don't always know what that is. Putting the pieces together can be hard. Um, When I was 15 years old, I was a pretty outgoing kid. I really liked school. I was in grade 10. I really liked it. I was... I was pretty smart, and high school had been a fun transition for me. When I started high school in grade 9, I joined the music department, and I got very involved in the leadership council there, so we were putting on shows and productions all the time. And I had made all these friends who were in the music department who I really liked, and I felt kind of lucky to be friends with them because they were a couple of years older than me, and that's sort of a big deal in high school. Um, And they were really good people, like... We hung out all the time. We ate lunch together, and we were planning and running interesting events at the school. We were making a difference, um, and we were hanging out on weekends, and people really cared about each other. The only problem was that at the end of my grade 10 year, most of my friends were finishing grade 12, and they were graduating. So they're packing up and heading off to university, and I still had two years of high school left to do alone. And so grade 11 was very hard for me. And I didn't notice the changes in myself right away, but I started to get like more and more nervous about being at school. And I felt lonely. Even though I had people to hang out with, I didn't feel like they really knew me or cared about me. I was tired all the time. At school, I was mostly quiet and reserved, but then at home, I was, like, picking fights with my parents, and and I'm really good at fighting, so we were having, you know, we don't talk about that time. We were fighting a lot, and I was crying, like, this incredible amount. Like, I was sneaking off into bathrooms at school to just cry. And I hated doing homework, which I used to really care about. And I was trying to figure out, like, was there a way I could just be done with school? I didn't want to go to university, and I started telling people that and making plans to just be done with the whole thing. And I remember being in the basement of my house one night, and our house is a split level, so the basement, you know, kind of spreads out, and the stairs come down up here. And my mom was sitting on the stairs above me, and I was, like, pacing the basement, just back and forth. And I don't really remember what exactly we were talking about, but at some point my mother was like, look, I'm trying so hard to understand, but I just don't get what's going on. What is wrong with you right now? And I just like doubled over. Like I just fell over and I <laughs> I was like pulling on my own hair, <laughs> which is, you know, that's unusual, right? I, was, I fell over, I was pulling my hair and I was crying so hard and I said, I don't know. I don't know. If I knew what was wrong, I would fix it. I have no idea what is wrong with me. And my mom was and is really good in a crisis. So she got really quiet on the stairs for a long time. And then she said, okay, if I made an appointment for you to talk to somebody, would you go? And I must have nodded or something, right? Like I was, I was pretty frustrated. I would have tried anything. 
And so she did. She found a counselor that she trusted. And she drove me 40 minutes each way every week for several months so that I could talk to Joan. And Joan helped me. She helped me, like, stack up this list of losses in my life. Like all of my friends who had gone away to university, the dating relationship that hadn't worked out, the classes that I'd wanted to take and I couldn't. It, none of them on their own seemed like a very big deal, right? So I hadn't paid very much attention. But when you made the list, it was pretty overwhelming. And Joan helped me, like, validate my feelings, and she helped me back away and stop fighting a little bit, give myself permission to feel. She taught me lots of things, most of which I've probably forgotten. But one of the things that I remember about that time is that when I was pacing in the basement that day, I just didn't remember life ever being different. I couldn't remember feeling hopeful or in control of anything. I only remembered feeling that way. And it was so overwhelming. And then over the next number of months, there came a point where even when I worked really hard and tried, I couldn't quite remember, I couldn't like conjure up what it had felt like to be pacing in the basement. I just didn't remember it anymore. And that's when I knew I was coming out the other side. Um, I've had seasons in my life since then <laughs> where people who know me have raised depression uh, as a possibility. Uh, but I'm lucky that that was the only major episode that I've experienced. And I know that's not true for everybody. That's just my story. But depression is complicated, right? It's not only the result of a chemical imbalance in, our, in the brain, although it's certainly part of it. It's caused by this combination, this sort of soup of biological and psychological and social factors. So our lifestyle choices and our relationships and our stress and our coping skills, they all matter just as much as our genetics. And depression can affect anyone at any time. And sometimes it seems like it just comes out of the blue. But the CMHA suggests, and this is kind of new to me, I hadn't thought about this before, but they suggest that it, people tend to be more vulnerable to depression in seasons of change. So that can be a negative change, like a job loss or the death of a loved one, but it can also just be a neutral change, <laughs> you know, a move to a new city or starting university. It's actually quite positive often, but it's still a change. And it can also be the result of a physical change in your body, like a hormonal change after you have a baby or if you're going through menopause or puberty. And because depression can be linked to change, there are actually some groups who are more at risk or at risk more often than others because their lives are in a state of change. So older adults or seniors actually are more at risk. And that made so much sense to me because think about all the things that are changing as you age, right? Your body is changing and you are less able to do what you used to be able to do. You might be dealing with the loss of a spouse or a shrinking circle of friends. You might be dealing with moving into a new uh, home and a new schedule that you're not in control of. So that's a lot of change to try to process. Women tend to be twice as likely as men to report or to be diagnosed with depression. And again, when I think just of the changes that happen for a woman when she becomes a mother, it's so substantial. Your identity changes, your sleep patterns and eating patterns change, your body changes. Your identity changes, your job, your relationship to work changes. That's a, that's a lot of things all at one time. And postpartum depression is incredibly common. And I think most moms, I mean, I'm not a mom myself, but it seems to me that most mothers are 
they're coping with that alone because they're embarrassed. It, fe- it can feel like if I'm depressed, it means I don't love my baby. And that's not true. And so I'm always so impressed and encouraged when I see young moms reaching out to one another, having the courage to tell their stories. There's some people in our congregation who do that on a regular basis, and I just, I just want to say thank you. Um, people with chronic illness are more vulnerable to depression because of these prolonged periods of pain. People with substance abuse problems are more vulnerable, and that tends to be because the kinds of family background issues, the kinds of trauma that make you vulnerable to substance abuse also make you vulnerable to depression. And those things can work in a cycle. If you feel depressed and you, and you start to use drugs or alcohol to cope with that, you know, it can sort of put you in a bit of a spiral. Um, Sometimes people from different cultures have beliefs about depression that make it harder for them to seek help. And so they become more vulnerable. And actually, as I was reading that, I wonder if that's true for men as well, Um, that there might be some cultural expectations that we have around what it means to be masculine and strong that mean that if a man is struggling, it's harder to reach out or tell somebody that. Um, Indigenous people have much higher rates of depression almost double the Canadian average. Um, The loss and trauma that is common to all Indigenous Canadians because of residential schools, because of loss of home and land and status, because of things like the 60s scoop, as well as sometimes limited access to health care and support makes that whole group very vulnerable. And finally, youth, anyone who's 15 to 24 years old, experience high rates of depression. In fact, more than 250,000 Canadian youth, so more than a quarter of a million young people, experience a major depressive episode every single year. And young people who are gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgendered are even more at risk. Everything is changing for youth. Right, Their bodies are changing. It's a new school, new friends, new experiences. Responsibilities are changing. It can, and, you know, it can be hard to recognize depression in youth because we can sort of write off the changes as just being normal for adolescence. It's just teen moodiness. That's what it was like for me. I didn't realize anything was wrong. <laughs> Like, I didn't even have enough experience of myself as a person to know that I didn't feel normal. And so I'm lucky that my mom saw it, that she was able to see past being frustrated and angry with her teenager and see that I was struggling. You know, last week in his sermon, Tom said he was surprised by how much overlap there was between uh, recommendations Um, from professionals about what to do with mental health and what the scripture taught. And um, I have to tell you that I've found the exact same thing this week. Because basically the research and the literature about depression stresses three things for us. The first is that depression is real. It's a real illness. You can't shake it. You can't just snap out of it. It's a real thing. The second thing is that you are not alone. That's so important for people to know. There are people who care about you and who want to help. And the third thing is that it won't always feel like this. It won't always be like this. Treatment is available and effective. The vast majority of people come through depression and live happy lives. And it turns out that that is exactly what the scripture says too. So I was looking at Psalm 23 and verse 4 this week. Here's what it says. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And a lot of you have been doing manuscript Bible studies with me this week. We started our connect groups, and we were learning about observation, how to notice things in the text. And so I was doing my own little manuscript of just this one verse. And here are some things that I notice. First of all, I notice the present tense 
of the verbs here and the first person pronouns. I walk through the darkest valley. The writer is talking about himself in really simple and clear terms, and he's telling it like it is. It is, in fact, the darkest valley, the darkest, lowest time in his life. And he's walking it. I found that so refreshing. It's very real. The dark times are real. We all face them. No one is going to get through life without experiencing pain and darkness and death. And regardless of whether or not you experience a major depressive episode, every one of us will walk through the darkest valley. It's real. Second thing I notice is that the writer stresses the presence of God with him in the valley. He says, I will fear no evil because you are with me. I think it says for, actually, but close enough. I will fear no evil for you are with me. It's such a powerful statement that even in the darkest place, I won't be afraid because I'm not alone. Um, In the summer of 2009, I moved to a new city, to Kingston, and that fall of 2009 was when we had the H1N1 outbreak across the country. Do you guys remember that? Okay. Now, I am not a person who's prone to, like, freaking out about getting sick. Like, I'm pretty stable about stuff like that. But as I, it was the first time that I had lived alone in an apartment by myself, and I didn't know very many people in the city. And so, as I started to hear all the stories about how sick people were getting and how fast it was striking them, I got, like, pretty nervous. Like, what was I going to do if I got totally flattened and sick and I was totally by myself, just alone in my apartment? Things are worse when you're alone. In fact, one of the very first things that God says about the human condition in Genesis is it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good. Now, pretty often we think that statement is about singleness, right? We think that means it's not good for a person to be single, so I'm going to pair them up. I don't think that's the whole story. Because there were lots of people in the Bible, Jesus included, by the way, who were single, but they were not alone. God does not intend for people to be alone. We're not made for it. It's why solitary confinement is such an effective and cruel punishment. We're made for relationship, for belonging and proximity to one another. And so it's profound that this psalm expresses a deep awareness of the presence of God in the midst of trouble. God is always coming close to us. In fact, Christians believe that coming close and having relationship with people was so important to God that he like put on skin and stepped into his own creation, which sounds like a science fiction movie. But we call it the incarnation. He gets in our shape and he comes into our world so that he can be close to us. And Jesus, even though he was God, when he did that, put on skin and came to be with us, he lived a fully human life. He experienced all the reality of humanity that we experience. In the book of Hebrews, the writer says this about Jesus. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet did not sin. It means that we don't have a God who's so far removed that he can't experience what we're experiencing. We have a God who knew pain. He knew sadness and grief. He understands it. And I want to tell you this morning that Jesus is not afraid of your pain. He is not mad about it. He's not disappointed in you. He walked through his own darkest valley. And so he will be with you in yours. So hear this if you hear nothing else this morning. God has not left you. You are not alone. 
Finally, as I was studying Psalm 23 this week, I kept getting stuck on this one word, the word through. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I think it is important (laughs) that this psalm does not say, even though I sit down in the darkest valley, right? Or even though I move in and make my home in the darkest valley. And it doesn't say, even though I'm stuck forever in the darkest valley. It doesn't say that. Even though I walk through. There is another side. There's a light at the end of that tunnel. There's a way out. This valley, we have to go through it, but it is not a permanent place. It's not a place we spend our whole lives in. It's a place we walk through. The first student I met when I was working in student ministry who was struggling with depression, her name was Jen, and she was, as a young adult, trying to deal with some of the trauma that she'd experienced when she was quite young and her mom got very sick very suddenly. And because she was the oldest, she had kind of buried her feelings about her mom being sick while she looked after her siblings. And she hadn't ever really learned how to trust adults, how to have relationships with anyone or receive love. And so when she started to experience that in our in our faith community, it really rocked her, and she kind of imploded for a little while. And for a while, I was her primary caregiver. And so I would see her every day, and lots of times all that meant was sitting beside her um, or holding her while she cried. And every time, well, she, when she was leaving or I was leaving, however that worked, I would hug her and tell her, I, I know it's really dark right now. And you have to trust me that it's not always going to be like this. And years later, she said, you know, I did not trust you. (laughs) But I finally now know that you're right because it doesn't feel that way anymore. It didn't last forever. And so you're not always going to feel like this. You're not in the valley forever. You're walking through. This is what we need to know about depression, what the professionals tell us now and what it turns out the scripture has been telling us all along. This is real. It's hard and it's dark and you're in it. But you are not alone. You weren't meant to be alone and God will never leave you alone. And this is not going to last forever. It won't always be like this. And so in light of that, I'd like to make a few practical suggestions because often we can know all kinds of stuff about something, but then when you really get in the moment, it's hard to know what to do. So I want to talk first to people who might be struggling with depression themselves, and then I'd like to talk to caregivers or those of you who know and love someone who is. So for my friends who are struggling with depression, um, Please forgive me for giving advice. I don't mean for this to sound trite, and I know that some of these are going to feel impossible to you. But while you're in the valley, there are some things that we know make it more bearable and help you feel more like yourself. One is regular exercise. Gosh, doesn't seem like exercise helps everything. That's too bad. Um, <laughs> exercising regularly, even taking a short walk. It turns out that exercise sometimes is as effective as antidepressant medication. So it is worth it to try to put this into your life. Eating well, again, good for everything. Managing stress, engaging with the world. That might mean picking up a hobby again that you used to have or spending time in nature or taking care of a pet or playing with a child. You know, anything that takes you outside of yourself for a little while and focuses on something else. Um, Talking to your doctor. It's really important to have professionals who are helping. Seeing a counselor. And finally, reaching out to other people. It is so important to talk so that you know that you're not alone. Choose someone you think is going to be a good listener and just start telling them. In fact, 
It might be that one of the ways you want to start reaching out to other people is to come and talk with one of our prayer ministers after the service this morning. There are going to be people over in this area who are really glad to hear your story and pray with you. So if you're struggling with depression, friends, on behalf of the staff and the leadership team and all of the people here who care about you, I want you to know that we believe you. We believe that this is a real struggle and that it's affecting your life and we care about you. You don't have to suffer alone. Now, for those of us who are worried about someone who's struggling with depression, you love someone and you're not sure how to help, the most important thing is presence and listening. Right? And sometimes it is hard for a person who's right in the middle of the valley to start a conversation with you. So you might want to consider starting it. You might want to open with something like, um, I have noticed some differences in you lately and I wondered how you're doing. Or I wanted to check in with you because you've seemed pretty down lately. And see where that conversation goes. Sometimes we can have the best intentions, but it can be a long journey and we can say things that are quite hurtful by accident. So if you're in a relationship with someone who is depressed, um, we're going to try to avoid saying things like, it's all in your head, why don't you just snap out of it? Or, you know, let's look on the bright side today. Or, shouldn't you be getting better by now? All of that stuff you might mean well, but that is very, very hard to hear. So instead, try saying things like, you are not alone in this. I'm here for you. Or, I might not be able to understand exactly how you feel, but I care about you and I want to help. Or, you are important to me. Your life is important to me. Or even, tell me what I can do now to help you. Because you might be surprised. It might not be what you think would be helpful. <laughs> it might be something else. And I just want to acknowledge that I get that it feels funny to just have lists of phrases, <laughs> you know, on the screen for us to just be practicing phrases. But sometimes when you're in a new situation and you're worried, it can help to have, to have thought through a phrase already. For instance, when you're talking with someone who's depressed, you might notice that it gets darker than you expected, right? You might notice that people are talking about suicide or about harming themselves. You might notice that they seem to be starting to put their affairs in order or like visiting friends and family kind of in succession like they're saying goodbye. They might be seeking out pills or weapons. And this is a strange one. It's counterintuitive you might notice that someone who has been very low for a long time suddenly seems calm and happy and cheerful for the first time in a long time. Pay attention to that because sometimes what that means is that someone has decided to end their life. And because they suddenly feel like there's a way out, they feel calm and hopeful and happy. And it doesn't necessarily mean that things are better. It is so hard to think that someone we know and love would consider suicide. But often when we're depressed, we don't see any other way out. And suicide is a very real danger, and I want you to be able to bring it up. Don't worry about bringing up suicide. Sometimes we think if we bring it up, we're going to be putting thoughts into someone's head. That is not true. It's not true. I guarantee that they have already thought about it. And you need to talk to them. We need to be brave and willing to step into those tough conversations. You can try saying something like, I am really concerned about you as I listen. Have you been thinking about hurting yourself? You keep talking about death. Are you considering suicide? And if they are, you need to be able to ask, have you started making a plan? That's a hard question. But it's always surprising to me that, generally speaking, people are willing to be honest about that. 
If they're in that place, they'll tell you they are. And if someone is talking about committing suicide, the plan of action is real simple. Don't leave them alone. Stay with them and then get help. Seriously, you call 911 or you put someone in the car and you drive to the hospital. Call a crisis line if you're not sure, but I'm pretty sure they're going to tell you the same thing I just did. Those might be some of the hardest conversations that you ever have, but that is how you can save someone's life. And so if you are uncomfortable asking some of those questions, I want to encourage you to literally practice, to go home this afternoon and sit down with your spouse or your friend and role-play that conversation so you can say the words. We want everyone to be better prepared for that. That's why we're offering the Safe Talk course. You really might want to sign up for that. Um, You know, the practicing is tricky, right? And I was and I still am kind of a little bit worried about this sermon. It just feels like so much information to give you, so many phrases and sentences. But um, in 2007, I was working on campus and we ran an information night for students about depression and suicide. And my friend Holly, who's a counselor, came over and she talked us through a lot of this material. And then we literally broke into groups of three and sat down to role play those conversations. And I was in a group with Tom and Ken, two students who were very nervous and super awkward (laughs) as we're doing the role play. They did not know what to say. But over the next 10 years, both Tom and Ken became campus pastors with InterVarsity, and they both had a number of students who were suicidal. And so I happened to be supervising them during some of those times, and I was the one they called from the car, right? They're calling me from the car on the way to visit the student who just texted that they were going to take a bunch of pills. So you do some coaching via text message, what to say and when to call 911. But those guys, those two Young men have ended up walking with students through weeks in hospital and then helping them find their feet again afterwards. And last year, my friend Ashley called me, and she had this problem. She had 18 people join a Bible study she was leading for first-year university students. So that's pretty good. I said, that's not really a problem. That's celebrate. We celebrate that. She said, no, no, here's the problem. There's 18 of them, and every single one of them has a diagnosed mental health issue, either depression or anxiety or both. What am I going to do? Every single one of 18. I wish that this wasn't as pervasive a problem as it is. But I want us as people of faith, as a community, to be people who are prepared and equipped, ready to love and serve the world we live in. I want us to face this with courage and with tenderness, with all the love and the hope that Jesus teaches us. So let's acknowledge with the writer of Psalm 23 that depression is real, that we are not alone in the valley, and that it will not always be like this. And let's walk through that valley together. Now, This is one of the longer sermons uh, that I have (laughs) preached. Um, But I, I do want you to be able to ask some questions or make some comments if anybody wants to. It's a heavy topic, and um, so I don't know if it's uncomfortable, but if, if you want to, you're really welcome. Now, I just also realized that we have not prepared to have a microphone. Can we? Oh, you, oh, but Olin is like my hero. Okay, and so we do have a microphone. If you, if you have an experience that you want to share with us or a question that you want to ask, you can just raise your hand or stand up and Olin will come and find you. Ethan will come and find you. Fantastic. So I was just thinking it's I think in uh, our Christian mindset, like you addressed at first, we feel like we shouldn't have depression and and in a lot of senses the uh, when we read scriptures or our promises or 
what appears to be promises that we shouldn't. We should have the joy of the Lord. We should have, you know, Noah's loving kindness, which is better than life, and the <laughs> peace mm-hmm. of God, which surpasses understanding. Like, just, in a sense, there's these promises, which, when reality hits, they're too good to be true. Mm. So I was just kind of curious how you would uh, uh, address that, I guess, those issues and, and questions. That's a good question. Thanks, Jesse. Yeah. You know, last week um, Tom was quoting someone who says, don't believe everything you think. Um, I think that applies to feelings as well. Don't believe everything that you feel. Um, And so that's hard because I want us to be able to acknowledge and experience the reality of our feelings and emotions. But the idea that what I feel is the whole reality, that's tricky. Gosh, I hope not. (laughs) You know, I hope that my feelings are not the whole reality, the measure of truth in the universe. So I just think that sometimes the promises and the truths that are that are written about in scripture are that's it's a way that we're describing and we're holding out a truth that is there and we believe that that's true and we're working towards it there's like a place in the psalm where um i'm going to look at it here oh where the writer says, I will fear no evil. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't say, I don't fear evil. It says, I will fear no evil. There's a way that we can like, set our will to be in line with the promises of God. I don't feel like you're with me, but I believe that you are. And so some of that is about... It's a little bit of a balance between having faith that something is true when you don't see it and being willing to walk towards it, um, even in the midst of a tough time. Thanks. Are we good? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Beautiful sermon, by the way. I really Thank you. It. I don't think we've met. We haven't. I'm actually, I don't live here. I'm from Vancouver. I'm just visiting with my friend David here. Nice. Um, good. Good. But I, I work in a hospital in Vancouver. Um, and a lot of the times, um, part of my job is negotiating and talking with people with depression. Um, and I find a lot of the times that um, people commonly try to self-diagnose. And they, yeah. they a lot of the times, actually misdiagnose. Um and a very common misdiagnosis uh, of depression is actually people who struggle with PTSD. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I see them all the time. I was wondering if you have ever encountered someone who may have had PTSD or maybe has had depression and has kind of mis- miscorrelated the two and what would be an indicator of something like that. Uh, I think I should ask you that question. Oh, you <laughs> Um, what, what do you what do you what do you look for? What um, what are the differences? The, the 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 problem with PTSD and depression is I I personally have PTSD. Okay. Um, I've been in four major car wrecks on a freeway, all yeah. within three months of each other. Right. Um, thank God I'm alive. Really am. Um, <clears throat> but it, it's very difficult to see the difference. Uh, yeah. You. you almost can't you you see people with ptsd and you're like it's just someone who's depressed um but i think what follows with ptsd is extreme anxiety yeah um instances of people people not being able to function um and this is where the the difference between the depression and the ptsd come in is um depression is heavy and consistent and ptsd is light and and then, right. bam. Yeah, it's like, a little it's bit more right intermittent. There. And then you, you'll notice that. Like, you, you, you have a tendency to, to look at people with depression, and you're like, oh, they're depressed. They're not functioning. That's yeah. fine. And then when you see someone with PTSD and they stop functioning, you think, oh, they're just depressed. It's like, no, right. no, no, hold on. Yeah, yeah. This person is having a major episode. Yeah, yeah. And then, that's great. I mean, to address it's the same way as you would address depression. It's hey, great. You okay? That's so helpful. This, yeah, and it, it's... A common misconception is it's not just found in soldiers, you know. That's the thing. It's a lot of people are like, oh, PTSD, where'd you serve? Where'd you go to the Army? Like, right. I, I didn't, right? Yep. I flipped a car on a freeway, yep. you know. I, I came out of that alive. I walked out of that without hurting myself. And, like, 
Right. That's but traumatic. It, but it impacts you. Yeah, it's yeah. Traumatic Thank you. Stress, That's right? so helpful. That's the thing. I think so. um, it highlights for us the importance of getting a professional involved, right? Like whether whether you think you know what's going on or your friend, you think you know what's going on with your friend, um, counselors and doctors, people can help us diagnose uh, properly, and the treatment can be different. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. That's good. I'll break the ice. Um, uh, my parents divorced when I was a really young child, and I went through a lot of divorce. There's a lot more to that story. But I moved uh, on my own to go through my senior year of high school, and uh, I had to fight through a lot of kids wanting to beat on me because I was um, 20 years old in high school. So I was older than everybody else, so they didn't like that. So I went through a lot of... I like to call it hell, but a lot of abuse from school. So, yeah. um, so I guess I got a long testimony that it's mm. you will get through it. It will get better, and um, I, I believe that it is very true. That's good. Thanks, Aaron. I appreciate that. When my when I was 21, my I was living at home. I came back to live with my dad because he had become extremely depressed, and he begged me with tears in his eyes to move home with him. But my mother had died, and he had gone into an extreme depression. And I remember just endless nights trying to talk him up. And I was so young; I really didn't have the skills, but I. Every night it was he wanted to kill himself. And um, luckily, I wasn't responsible for helping him. My, his doctor was and had him um, put into an institution called Homewood in Ontario yeah. where he could get help. And they told me he was suicidal depressed. And I know he had suffered with depression all his life from being in World War II and... Uh-huh. PTSD, I guess you call it. Anyway, um, he did come through it, and he started going to church, and he he lived the rest of his life. I think he always struggled with depression, you know, but he he made it through to the other side, and with <laughs> all I could do was be there. I don't think I was much of a help, but it was it was very depressing for me too because I yeah. felt very helpless. But, That's right. Yeah. That's right. It has an effect on the life of the person suffering and on the caregivers both of those are both of those are challenging roles thank you um i think that one of the areas uh, i have a background in counseling and um that people miss like you've talked about adults yeah. and young adults and teens but young children children yeah um can also suffer from depression. And I think it's really important to understand that uh, young kids, um, you don't tend to see suicide amongst them, but you do see a lot of um, other kinds of difficulties. And it's, yeah, I love you too. Um, it's really important to understand and to look out that there are signs, even though it may look a bit different amongst young children, preteens. Yeah. And it seems like, especially with children, you'd have to, you'd have to be so aware as a caregiver because kids don't always have the language or the words to tell us that something feels different. So we'd have to be extra vigilant with children. Thank you. Um, what do you do when um, depression continues and continues? You know, there's always that thing that people say, well, you know, there's always hope. There's always hope. But it continues and continues. And the people around you just get tired of it. And, and then it just ends up being that you don't see anything because everybody's heard it. 
and nobody wants to hear the same story again. Now, how do you deal with that? That part, you get past that and to the serious hopelessness. Yeah, that's a great question, Val. Thanks. Yeah, wouldn't I be incredible if I just knew a simple answer to that? Um, yeah, I. what I really appreciate there is that you're touching on, I think, like some of the compassion fatigue that happens for caregivers, like if you're walking with someone for a long time, you can get tired and eventually feel like, I kind of need to step away from this. It's really important for caregivers to also have their own support network. If you're the primary caregiver, that you have some people who are supporting and caring for you, you might need to be in counseling yourself so that you can continue to be be healthy as you're helping. And my goodness, if, it's, if you're the person who's been suffering and walking through that valley for so long that you realize people are stepping away from me because they're tired, that, like you said, that's a whole other kind of hopelessness and, and a feeling of um, being stuck. Um, I think my encouragement, unfortunately, is really similar, to keep like keep pressing in, even to new networks, to new friends and new people who can listen, to, to keep going back with doctors and counselors to say, like, it's not, we're not through this yet. It's not helping. And keep looking. I, perseverance is so hard. And so that's, that's my encouragement, to continue to persevere with, with caregivers and professionals and, and keep, keep asking, right? Like, we have to be able to advocate for ourselves to keep saying like it is not okay with me i need some help all right thank you for your honesty um i just i just want to remind you as we're closing that the information about safe talk is on the table at the back and that there will be people here to pray with you right after the service if you come to the front and you notice that the people who are praying are kind of occupied, just have a seat somewhere in this general vicinity. They're going to take some time with, uh, with each person, and so they'll be with you as soon as they can. <clears throat> I'd like to pray for you as we're ending this morning, so I'll pray for you, and then we'll, uh, then we'll dismiss for coffee hour. <sighs> Father, it is our great gift and blessing to be part of your family, to have been adopted in and to belong to one another. And so I pray that you would more and more, would you open our eyes to see one another clearly? Would you open our lips to be honest and truthful about our stories? Would you give us compassion and courage to move forward together? I pray that your presence would be felt, would be strong this week with those who are suffering and those who are worried. We pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. I ask those things in your name. Amen. Okay.